good. We thank you for your word. As we come to it this morning, as we think about the resurrection of our Savior. And we give you thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. He lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? Well, first of all, I know because the Bible tells me so, but it doesn't rhyme. I had a professor in seminary, and uh, right before Easter, he talked us through that song, that, that, that chorus, and boy, he could amen every one of those, but then you get to, uh, he lives within my heart, and it's so experiential that it's not, it's not trustworthy. But because we know he lives within Scripture, because the Scripture tells us that, and because of our faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there is a sense of the indwelling Christ. There is a sense that I know that he lives. Why do I believe he lives? Because the scripture tells me so. How do I know that he lives? Because I walk with him on a daily basis. And he's faithful. This is our testimony today. Jesus, the son of God, God made man, died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. I, I, I hit the ground running this morning. I got up so excited. Drove all the way to Creighton with hymns playing and, and so excited. But the truth is he is alive every day. The Lord Jesus Christ is not Punxsutawney Phil. He doesn't peek out once a year and say, I'm still here, bye, and close the door. He lives every day. Let me give you a roadmap for this morning as we talk about the resurrection of Christ. Uh, we're going to start with the Old Testament prophecies and types of the resurrection. We'll see that Jesus himself prophesied his death and resurrection. We'll see that the resurrection is a historical reality that carries theological implications and implications for our daily lives. So let's, let's begin with prophecies and types. Uh, Jesus is the dominant focus of all scripture. He's the subject of all scripture. He's the, the primary theme of all scripture. His resurrection is part of the biblical narrative, his death and resurrection, going all the way back to the earliest chapters of Genesis, as the, the sounds of the fall are still echoing in the garden. And God, the Father, shows up to deal with Adam and Eve and the serpent. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Her seed is Jesus. He shall bruise you on the head, a wound which brings death. And you shall bruise him on the heel. It's a serious wound, especially one coming from a serpent, but not one that would leave him permanently dead, but rather which would be overcome by life. You don't get the fullness of the gospel out of Genesis 3.15, but it lays the foundation for it. In Psalm 16, words which Paul quoted in Acts 13 while preaching in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch, David writes, I will bless the Lord, I will bless Yahweh, who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, 
and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. It's a clear messianic prophecy. It's been accepted. The fact that Paul uses it in Acts 13 underscores that this applies to Jesus. David has had that as a hope for himself. As he has trusted the Lord, as he has submitted his life to Yahweh, as he worships Yahweh, he knows that Yahweh one day will raise him from the dead, though he does not know how. But we see it applied to Jesus in a wonderful way. And besides the various prophecies of Jesus' death and resurrection come types and shadows, uh, depictions, kind of living parables. What do we see in Genesis 22? We see Yahweh commanding Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son. He gives the command. Abraham takes Isaac and some servants and they start heading for Mount Moriah and they arrive at Mount Moriah and they leave the servants behind and they go up the mountain and uh, Isaac speaks to Abraham, his father, and says, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. They got up to that the, the, they got up to that, that place, which is, some think is the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Abraham built the altar. He bound his son. He laid him on the altar, and he raised the knife. That knife hangs there glittering in the air, and the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, stop. Do not harm him. Now I know that you won't withhold your only son from me. What's so interesting about that is, as they set out from where they've been living, it's the third day when they get to Mount Moriah. Abraham gets his son back on the third day. Hebrews 11, so many years later, says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only son. To whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he also received him back. See, as far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac was dead. God had said, offer up your only son Isaac. And Abraham offered him, and that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Writer of Hebrews doesn't say Abraham went to offer or bound him or was prepared. He said he offered him. And so for Yahweh, Abraham has offered his only son. He has laid him out and said, this is my hope. This is the one that I asked for. This is the one I begged for. Way back in Genesis 15, I asked, you said, Abraham, haven't I given you everything? And I said, what have you given me? I don't have a son. And then we had that whole covenant thing. And then you finally, 25 years later, gave me a son. And then you demanded his life from me. And because I believe you can raise the dead, I offered you his life. And Abraham received him back. We could speak about Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, one of Abraham's grandchildren. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold into slavery, counted as dead, and given back to his father, not only alive, but in a position of power and glory. 
What's more, Joseph forgave his brothers as Jesus forgave those who crucified them. Forgive them, Jesus said, for they do not know what they do. Joseph said to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day, to keep many people alive. That's why Jesus died and rose was to keep many people alive. We could speak about Jonah, the prophet swallowed by the great fish, delivered alive back to the shore on the third day. Or the hope of Israel expressed in Hosea chapter 6. Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has struck us, but he will bandage us. He will make us alive after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. See, that's all the hope of Israel. But Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, and we see it fulfilled in him first. Jesus himself spoke about his resurrection and his death. At the very outset of the ministry, he said to the Jews, destroy this temple and on the third day we'll raise it up. And they said this, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But he was speaking about the temple or the sanctuary of his body. What's interesting is it says, John goes on to say, (coughs) excuse me, What's interesting is that John goes on to say, uh, after he was raised, his disciples remembered that he had said this. After he was raised. Later on in John chapter 5, Jesus says, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. The same life in the Father is in the Son. He would voluntarily submit himself to death. In fact, he had to voluntarily yield up his spirit. No one could take it from him. He said that in John 10. I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me, and I will take it up again. Nobody could take his spirit from him by force. All the violence in the world could not take his spirit from him. He yielded it up. And all the powers of hell and death could not restrain him from taking it back up when he was ready. Of course, in the year prior to his crucifixion, Jesus began to give his disciples detailed preparations for what was to come. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter then, of course, takes him aside and says, this will not happen to you. It's really weird. It's really weird. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We believe that, they say. I'm going to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. We believe that. We're with you. I'm going to be killed. Yeah, yeah, you probably will be. And I'll, I, I will be raised up on the third day. Now, you're nutty. There's something wrong with you. We're going to protect you from yourself. We're going to continue to trust you as our Messiah. But when you talk about stuff like this, you're bats. Matthew 17, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved, because they don't believe it. They believe he'll be killed, but they don't believe that he'll be raised. 
Mark writes that as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, now this is leading into the triumphant entry. Jesus was walking on ahead of them. They were amazed and those who followed were fearful. Uh, and, and again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed. The betrayer is listening to this. The son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Matthew 16, he says, he began to tell his disciples this. That language tells us he didn't tell them one time. This became a topic of conversation for six or eight months. The times that we see it recorded in scripture are are kind of the high points marking different elements of time. But this was a constant subject of conversation and they never believed it. They never believed it. After Jesus had been crucified, the closest thing we get to faith that he would rise again is from the chief priests who go to Pilate and say, would you set a guard to make sure he doesn't, his body's not stolen. If his disciples had believed the the cumulative total of the Old Testament prophecies and types and shadows and the words of their Savior, they would have been sitting there in the garden waiting and instead they were cowering jesus christ the son of god is the dominant focus of scripture his suffering and death and resurrection are found throughout the old testament in prophecies and types and shadows nothing about his life including his suffering and death and burial and resurrection came as a surprise to him he knew it was all coming he wasn't disappointed in the outcome Disappointment requires an expectation that isn't fulfilled. I expected somebody would be here or somebody would do this, and they didn't do it, and then I was disappointed. But Jesus was never surprised. He knew everything that was in man. So he's not even disappointed. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knew when it would happen and how, and he carefully prepared his disciples for what did happen. And then, of course, just as the Old Testament prophets predicted, just as the Old Testament types and shadows depicted, just as Jesus himself said, he was arrested and abused and crucified. He died. He yielded it up his own life because it could not be taken from him, and he was buried. This is a historical reality. Jesus died on a Roman cross at a hill outside the city of Jerusalem, called the place of the skull. Some of the the Gospels use the word Golgotha, which is an Aramaic word that means skull. The Greek word that's used in the text is cranian, which is where we get cranium from. And the word calvary comes from the Latin word calvaria, which is the skull cap. So even our word calvary, not cavalry, Calvary is a reference to the skull. Uh, There is a church, Roman Catholic church, historic site in the old city in Jerusalem today that is called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And they claim that it is where Jesus was crucified. It is not where Jesus was crucified. 
it was well within the boundaries of the old city when Jesus died, and the scriptures say that he was taken outside the city. There is a place, a cliff face outside the city, that until just recently looked very much like a skull. There's a picture from the early 1900s where you can clearly see kind of eye sockets and the bridge of a nose. Erosion over recent years has caused some of that to collapse, and it doesn't look like that anymore. I learn every time I study. I love the Word of God because I'm constantly learning. One of the things I learned this week is that there's no place in Scripture where it says that Jesus was crucified up on a hill. Golgotha is called the place of a skull, not a hill. Had the Romans crucified Jesus up on some lonely hilltop, which is always the way it's depicted, it, it kind of misses the whole point of Roman crucifixion, which is to send a message. The place of the skull today is found behind a bus station, which is appropriate. It's not this glorified sanctuary. It's this simple, homely place that's 100 or 200 feet from what was once a major Roman thoroughfare to the west of Jerusalem, where people passing by would see, here are these three crucified criminals. Matthew, in fact, and Mark both refer to the passers-by hurling insults at him. Passers-by. If it's up on a lonely hilltop, there are no passers-by. You go there and then you come back. But a road has passers-by. I learned that this week. Why was Jesus crucified? Well, the scriptures are clear. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus was pierced through for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. His blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God publicly displayed his son as a propitiatory sacrifice. The father released us from our sins by the blood of Christ. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ suffered for sins once for all time, being put to death in the flesh. The scripture is really clear. Why did he do this? He did this to take away sin. He did this as a substitute. And having died, Jesus was buried. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who was a member of the ruling council, Joseph was too. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. They disagreed with the decision to put Jesus to death. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and he asked for permission to take Jesus' body down and, and bury it. Pilate was surprised Jesus was still dead. So he sent for the centurion in charge and questioned him. And the, and the centurion said, yes, he's dead. And so Pilate says, okay, you can do the thing that almost nobody gets to do. You can take his body down and bury it. Part of Roman crucifixion was leaving the remains there as a, as a warning. And so Joseph took the body, Matthew 27 says, and wrapped it in a clean linen and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. As the old confessions say, Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. And just one more thing remained in the redemption of his people. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb with the other Mary to look at the grave. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. 
And the guards quaked from fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. The women looked and then they ran to tell the disciples. And the disciples thought they were speaking nonsense. They thought that they were joking. They didn't believe them. Peter and John headed out and ran to the tomb. John got there first, probably younger, maybe a little bit lighter. Peter's older, maybe a little bit lumpier. John stops at the outside of the tomb. Peter gets there and he goes in. And he sees the bench where Jesus had been laid, but he just sees the shrouds laying there, no body in them. And there's something else that we don't often think about related to Psalm 16. You will not suffer your Holy One to undergo decay. See, in in John 11, when Lazarus dies, Jesus calls for them to open the tomb. And Martha says, wait up, hold on. It's been four days. He stinketh. You got to say that in King James. He stinketh. But there's no mention of an odor. This is still a new tomb. A decaying body has never been in this tomb. Jesus was dead, but kept from decay by the power of God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 summarizes the gospel, and and I I confess to you that I've summarized this wrong. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that's always where I stopped. But Paul doesn't stop. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, Then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, died. After that he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The gospel is not just that Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried and was raised according to the scriptures, but that that he went in, he went on then to show the, the truth of his resurrection by many proofs. Many clear proofs, Acts chapter 1 says. The gospel that is the redemptive power of God was planned in eternity past, carried out in a moment in history, and changes eternity to come. Anchored to historical reality. When Paul wrote those words, most of the witnesses to the resurrected Christ were still alive. Anybody in Corinth receiving this letter had Paul's permission. Go look him up. Well, how am I supposed to know where they are? Well, you can find Peter. Peter will be in Jerusalem or he'll be in Antioch. He might be in Rome, but you can find him. You ask around, you'll find Peter. You'll find, you'll find John. You'll find Andrew. Matthew's around. You can go find those guys and say, so what happened that day? And Peter will say, I saw him. Ate fish with him. Adam was there, weren't you? You were one of the 500. Absolutely. Sandy was there. She saw him. He's alive. He's alive. People today will say there's, there's, there's no direct evidence that Jesus rose from the dead because there, there are no witnesses. Do you know this? This is a shocker. 
Do you know that there are no witnesses of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln? Nobody saw John Wilkes Booth fire the shot. They only heard the shot. And then they turned and they saw him standing there with a gun in his hand, and Lincoln slumped over, and he attacked Major Rathbone with a knife, and then he leapt over the railing, he fell badly, breaking his leg, cried out, Six Semper Tyrannus, thus always to tyrants, escaped by a horse from D.C., but nobody saw him fire the shot. Is there any doubt Booth killed Lincoln? No. Why? Because there's eyewitness testimony that takes us right back to the moment it took place. And there's no other reasonable conclusion. There's no other reasonable conclusion than that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The Old Testament scriptures promised them. They depicted his resurrection in types and shadows. Jesus repeatedly said he would rise from the dead. And he did. Think about this now. I want to take you beyond scripture. And I tell you that. I tell you I'm speculating. Do you think anybody went back to the tomb? Do you think maybe the soldiers went back? What happened to us? Do you think maybe the chief priests and the scribes, when they found out that the tomb was empty, went to check for themselves? Peter and John were there. Do you think that maybe Andrew and Philip and Matthew ran to see? Fifty days later, the Spirit comes at Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved. Some of them saying, I want to see. I believe, but I want to see. You know, I think that it's possible, at least, that more people saw the empty tomb than saw the resurrected Christ. Because it's still there in Jerusalem at that time. We have no idea where it is, by the way. Somebody says this is where he, we don't know, it's 2,000 years ago. Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. It's been passed over many times, built up, torn down. We've got no idea. But that empty tomb stood as a witness for a generation. Because he lives, because Jesus Christ lives, there there are some theological implications. I know theology is kind of boring for you. It's not boring to me, so you're just going to have to endure it. Very quickly, the Father is glorified through the resurrection of, his, of Christ. His Son died just as he was sent to do, and then he rose again just as he was sent to do. Jesus prayed in the garden before he was arrested. I have accomplished everything you gave, me, gave to me to do. And the only thing left to do was to die and rise. And he accomplished that. In addition, Romans 1.4 says that by the resurrection of dead, Jesus is declared to be Lord. Now, he was Lord always. But the resurrection of the dead is a public statement to all the world. Jesus Christ is Lord, and you're going to have to deal with him one day. We have to say that Jesus' resurrection is not good news for everyone. It's not good news for those who remain in their sins. Paul in Athens preaches this. Having therefore overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus' resurrection from the dead seals judgment. 
God has a day of judgment set. Jesus is the judge. And Jesus' resurrection is the, the, final, the, the final seal of that. It will happen. It must happen. How is Jesus' resurrection proof of inevitable judgment? Well, for a moment, look, at, look in your mind's eye at Jesus on the cross, suffering, dying, bearing the awful weight of sin shrouded in darkness, the suffering and judgment that we sinners deserve. And it's what every sinner will receive if they don't turn to Jesus in faith, casting their sin and guilt on him. There on the cross is the emblem of God's love for his people. How much, how, how, how much did God love the world? He loved the world enough to send his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life rather than perishing, but that those who don't believe in him will perish. How much does God hate sin? He put his own son to death for sin. The same event that causes you and I as true Christians indescribable joy should cause unbelievers to shake with fear. Nothing can prevent the judgment of God. But there's good news for those of us who trust in Christ and for unbelievers who will trust in Christ. Jesus' resurrection safeguards our salvation. And that's because his resurrection is sure and certain evidence of God's eternal enduring love for us. Jesus' resurrection makes salvation an eternal blessing. That's why we are born again to a living hope. We're not born again to then live the rest of our lives in fear. Am I doing it right? Am I getting every T crossed and every I dotted? Have I, have I, have I stepped outside the lines? Have I colored outside the lines? We're born again to a living hope that can be, never be taken away. As surely as Jesus' death washed away all of our sins, once and for all time, his resurrection assures us that we stand fully and perfectly justified before God the Father. So that we go before God the Father now in the righteousness of Christ, justified once and for all time. We don't need to be repeatedly justified over time. Our consciences bother us. We're filled with regrets about the things that we've done or haven't done or should have done. But God the Father sees none of that. The Spirit sees none of that. The Son sees none of that. It was all poured out on Jesus. And his resurrection is proof that God has accepted his Son's life in our place. But there's more because Jesus' resurrection changes the very meaning of our daily lives. Because he lives, we are called to keep seeking the things above where he is. And to set our minds on things above, not things on earth. Because he lives, we have a strong motivation to live a faithful, fruitful life for the glory of God. Because he lives, we have the assurance that God is at peace with us today. I don't know if you're at peace with God. I don't know if you're still afraid of him. If you still avoid him. I do sometimes. But God is at peace with you. Because he lives every day, no matter what the day brings, we who are in Christ have every reason for hope and no reasons for despair. Douglas Wilson, a pastor in Idaho, wrote a, a brief piece on the resurrection that was published today. He says there, when Christ came out of the grave, he walked into an old world 
that at that moment had been made new in principle. The world had been a universal graveyard. Nothing but death everywhere. But now, here, was untouchable life walking around in it. I love that picture. So when he went to the cross, he transformed death. When he was laid in the grave, he sanctified our future graves. And when he rose from the dead, he entered in a world made new. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, my life is worth the living just because he lives. Would you stand with me and let's sing that together. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, I know he holds the future. My life is worth the living just because he lives. Amen and amen. Father, we thank you for this truth that Jesus lives. He lives every day. We shouldn't just celebrate it on Easter Sunday, and we don't. But thank you for this day once a year where we can focus all of our attention on this precious truth. Would you fill us with this reality that Jesus lives as we walk out into the outside world that is still marked by so much death everywhere and and realize that Jesus walked around in it as untouchable life and that he has given that untouchable life to us. And that while the world may be able to harm our bodies, our souls and spirits are safe with you through faith in Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.